Well, good evening, everyone. So, um, yeah, it's awesome just to spend that time in extended worship at the beginning. It's just dedicate this whole whole time to God through through our praise and worship. So, I didn't do much fishing in my childhood. Uh, in fact, there are only two occasions of fishing that I remember. Uh, the first was in France, and I was staying at my great aunt's and uncle's house uh, in the south of France, uh, and they lived fairly near to a, a trout farm. So uh, we thought, yeah, we'll go do that as a nice holiday activity. Um, however, the reason I remember this uh, was because that day, the, towards the end of the day, uh, the thing that my brother caught was my father's thumb. Uh, he managed to get the hook the entire way through my dad's thumb, uh, sending him to a French hospital covered in blood and spouting out what little French he knew, uh, which was rather funny uh, at the time. Uh, and the other time that I remember of fishing, uh, I was in on holiday again, and this was in the Gulf of Mexico this time, uh, where again my brother, my father, and myself spent an afternoon on a fishing boat uh, full of other tourists. And I remember this one um, for the reason that we only caught two fish. Uh, the first was... Uh, actually too small, and so we had to throw it back, because there were regulations about how big the fish could be. So we had to throw that one back, because it was too small. Uh, and the second was a puffer fish. Uh, and the leader of the boat said, no, you're not, not allowed to take that one home. Uh, and he actually took the puffer fish off the rod, blew it up like a balloon, and volleyed it, volleyballed it back into the sea. Uh, so not, not the type of animal treatment I condone, um, but <laughs> Both fish were rejected. So uh, we walked back off the boat, and my mum and sister were there like, where's the fish? Because there, there were buckets full of fish that other people on the boat had caught, uh, yet we were the unlucky ones to get absolutely nothing. So this evening, we're going to be looking at the last of the parables of the kingdom of heaven. Now, those are the parables that tend to begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like... Uh, but in this set of parables, Jesus isn't talking about the heaven that we understand uh, in the English sense of the word. In fact, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven he's referencing is the here on earth. It belongs to the present time. It's his kingdom that he's building. So Jesus was looking to describe the kingdom as we know it. Uh, yeah, so it's in its present time, it's in perfect state here on earth. It's, it's in the building state. And so it's the time in which men have temptations and duties as well as great privileges and blessings. Whilst the future condition of his kingdom in glory had yet very little been revealed. So out of interest here, uh, just by show of hands, this isn't meant to embarrass anyone or anything like that. How many people could tell me the parable of the dragnet in conversation if, I'd been sp if I hadn't been speaking about it tonight? No one. See, that's very interesting because that everyone I've talked about so far, when I've mentioned that I'm speaking on the parable of the dragnet, they're like, what? Sorry, the, the, the parable of the what now? But it's interesting because parables, they're, they're meant to be easy to remember. That's why Jesus told his stories, his parables. So we, it's, it's easy to remember the ones like the lost son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. Everything gets lost in the Bible. Uh, the, the sower, the easy to remember parables and stories. Yet for some reason, this one always gets forgotten. And I'm feeling because maybe it makes sometimes makes people uncomfortable as it mentions like the gnashing of teeth. Uh, but when Paul uh, Campion asked me to speak this evening, he said that I could pick any parable I wanted. I could have gone down that easy route of um, the sower or the, the, the lost son. Uh, but I believe that this parable of the dragnet, it had such significance to the Christian journey. And it needs to be studied just as much as the other ones, the sower and the lost sheep and all those ones. 
So it comes in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 to 50. So we'll read it off the screen. So it says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught up all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. They then sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wonderful. So, it's widely thought, actually, that this parable wasn't one for the large crowds, and it wasn't one for the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but actually it was for Jesus' closest disciples. When Jesus called his first disciples, he started with fishermen. He told them that they weren't going to be fishing for fish anymore, but they were going to fish for men. They would be fishers of men. So this parable that he was teaching those disciples was kind of an add-on to that instruction to be fishers of men. It was a hint, an instruction to how they should be fishing. They would have known all about dragnets. Uh, for, you th for those who don't know what a dragnet is, I had a picture. It's not working. Uh, but basically, it's one that... Um, lies out on the seafloor, uh, and then at the end of the day, it will just, it'll, through the day, it will catch, through the bubbling and the rippling of the waves, it will catch fish, just tangle them in its net, and then the, at the end of the day, it will drag it in, uh, and it will just pull up everything in its path. So that's what a dragnet is. But something I believe that's the, of the utmost importance to notice in this parable is on the subject of judging. No judging is done until the net is drawn up onto the beach. While the net representing the kingdom is being dragged through the water, it's indiscriminate to what it collects. It collects the good fish, it collects the bad fish, the useful and the useless. And in the sea, there's all kinds of fish and all kinds of junk, and it's simply, they just coexist together. Now, a day of judgment is coming, pictured by the sorting when the catch arrives at the beach. But prior to that event, nothing is rejected. But it's an important distinction we need to make as a church representing Jesus' Christ work here on earth. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, I come not to judge the world, but to save the world. What business then do we have as a church in thinking that we have a right to judge the world? Now the church needs to be very careful that it doesn't mount on its moral high horse and condemn a world that Jesus himself doesn't condemn. We will get to the whom that Jesus condemns uh, and God condemns shortly, but a second caution for the church is to avoid the temptation of acting like a sports fisherman who's only interested in catching the majestic sailfish. Now, I had to do a lot of Googling to find out what was the best fish that fishermen are after. And the sailfish, the one with the massive fin on its back, that's the, that's the, the one to catch. So we don't want to act like those sports fishermen who just want them. The net of the kingdom doesn't discriminate and it drags all sorts of things into the kingdom. The old boots, the beer cans, the plastic bags. So the church needs to avoid the habit of rejecting as junk the flotsam and jetsam of the world. James, in his epistle, uh, cautions the church about this type of discrimination as well. In James chapter 2, he says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. A poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, 
But say to the poor man, oh, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The church's role now in this age in time is to imitate the kingdom in a non-judgmental way of doing business. Jesus didn't shy away from sinners and outcasts, and neither should we as the church. Yet too often the practice of the church has been to toss out the rotten members while the net is still in the water. We haven't yet been dragged up onto the beach. We happily welcome into our mists uh, week after week those who have itsy-bitsy sins like gossiping or little white lies. But God help those who drink to forget or who lose their will to be married or who are not necessarily of a heterosexual persuasion. It's only the church that makes the difference between the gravity of sins. Too often the church takes on a role that belongs to the Holy Spirit. Reform is his role. He's the sanctifier. He's the comforter. He's the encourager. He's the helper. So what happens to the church being a spiritual hospital? It's like tipping a sick patient out of his sickbed onto the street. Yet we as a church, we, when we face those, what we see as big sins, we tend to roll out the Ten Commandments or whack them with Deuteronomy. Uh, but we decide that the Holy Spirit needs a hand to reform the church and the world. And that's already been tried and it doesn't work. Galatians Chapter 3, 21, 22, it says, If there were a law that could give men life, then we would be, could be made right by following the law. But this is not true because the scriptures showed that the whole world is bound by sin. This was the promise that, would be forgiven through f that we would be given through faith. And it's given to people who believe in Jesus Christ. If the divine arm twisting on Mount Sinai didn't work, why do we think that it's going to work today? Our problem is that we don't trust the process that God has put in place. We don't trust the sanctifying role of the Holy Spirit. We think it's too slow. It's ineffective and it doesn't work. But this is part of the mystery of the kingdom of God. Whether, we, whether or not we can see it working, it's not up to us. Yet this parable that Jesus taught shows that God is happy with the progress his kingdom is making. After all, it's his fishing business. So let's move on to that sorting process. Finally, the whole mess, the trout, the good, the bad, the flotsam, the jetsam, the beer cans, the plastic bags are dragged up on the beach. And it's interesting that at the judgment, everyone experiences the power of the resurrection. Everyone is raised to stand before the righteous Jesus. So everyone experiences his resurrection power. In the parable, what's the criteria by which the fish are sorted? Good and bad. So we automatically assume that separation is based on the goodness or the badness of a person. In other words, it's a moral decision. But is this what the parable actually means? When fishing for trout, my family and I, what were we after? Trout. So what did we keep? The trout. What did we do when we caught the puffer fish on the boat? We tossed it back. But does that mean that the puffer fish was bad morally? So the criteria we used to decide on the fishing trips was what was kept uh, and what was ditched was by the species of the fish. 
We put the trout in the bucket and ditch the puffer fish. But what would we do if some of the, of the trout were diseased? We would throw them out. Does that mean that those trout are morally bad? What if we caught that hugely sought-after sailfish when we were dragging the net in? Would we throw that out because it's not a trout? In all of this, who was deciding what was kept? Well, it was ourselves. It was the fishermen. It was the leader the, on the boat, the guy who knew about the fish. So the criteria for acceptance is based on what's acceptable to the fishermen, not on their moral status. If we're beginning to struggle with this idea, I'm going to ask us at this, at this stage, was the thief on the cross accepted because of his moral status? He was put in that save bucket purely on his acceptability to Jesus. So on what basis was the thief accepted? His faith in Jesus. And that better be true because if it isn't, then none of us are going to be accepted. And why is that? Because in Romans chapter 3 it says, For all have sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. And what does Jesus say about how many are good in Matthew 19? No one is good but one. That is God. So we need to believe in one undeniable fact. And the fact that no one goes to heaven because of a good track record. But then again, that's the same for anyone. No one goes to hell because of a bad one. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that one can boast. So we see Jesus on the beach with the whole world standing before him which is precisely exactly what he said is going to happen. In John 12, he says, I am lifted up and I will draw all men to me. So he basically says to them, I've already lived the perfect life that you could not live for yourself. I've already paid the death penalty for all your sins with my death on the cross. I've already defeated spiritual death by rising from the grave so that you can be born again and you can spend eternity with me. All you have to do is accept my sacrifice on your behalf and you can join me at the heavenly party. So what do we say? And it's how we answer that question that decides who goes into the good bucket and who's left flapping on the beach. The ones left flapping on the beach are those who willfully reject that free gift. And some of those, unfortunately, will be those who still think that their works play some part in their acceptance. So the sorting, fortunately for us, is done by the same Savior who hung beside that thief on the cross, who accepts us according to his criteria, not necessarily the criteria of our fellow Christians. The same God who stands there as our judge, fortunately, also stands there as our Savior. John 5:22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. No one else, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, certainly not the church, gets in on the act. The angels in the parable are under the direction of Jesus. They, they get to do the separation, but it's under his guidance. Now it's interesting to note here that the word that's used for evil is much stronger than the word that's used for bad in verse 48 of this parable. In the same 
it has the same sense of being willfully bad. And it's also, surprisingly, the same word that's used to describe the evil one, Satan himself. So the angels take these willfully bad ones and pitch them out on their ear so they don't ruin the heavenly party to which they're invited. But they, refused, they, re they refuse the invite. This is why heaven is going to be populated by forgiven sinners and hell will be populated with forgiven sinners. The difference is one group accepts the forgiveness while the other rejects it. So what are we going to do here as fishers of men, as continuing disciples, helping this dragnet on its way as it's still in the sea? Our tagline here at Shirley Baptist Church is passion for God, compassion for people. It's a phrase that gets thrown out so much, yet do we ever pause and think about the immense task that that is? And it's much like the new welcome, love, challenge, grow ethos. Do we realize the challenge that that is and what that's going to take? Paul and I, in our weekly meetings, uh, have been reading the book, The Message of Discipleship by Peter Morden. Uh, and this week, I was particularly challenged uh, by his chapter on love. The chapter was looking at the denial of Peter uh, when Jesus says to the disciples, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And on the subject of agape love, Peter, in his book, said this, this will require intentional leadership, a readiness to listen, a commitment to share leadership and ministry right across church life, and perhaps above all, a willingness to embrace real and costly change. What barriers are we breaking through in our church as we become communities of disciples who heed and obey Jesus' call to agape love? And I was really struck by Peter's words there. Are we willing to love when it costs us? Are we willing and ready to make bold steps to welcome people into our church, no matter their race, their marital status, their sexuality, their gender fluidity, are we willing to accept those people and welcome them without any judgment? Even the smallest act of welcome can mean a huge deal to the most marginalized in our society today, especially a welcoming act when to those people that have previously been rejected from the church worldwide. So let us not be a church that judges and favors, but rather let us be one that is open to all so that one day too, they may receive that call of Christ. They're going to be dragged onto the beach. They're going to have that conversation with Christ. So let's welcome them in. And then God, who is the keeper of all salvation himself, let him do the judging. Let him do the work. We just need to be here to welcome and love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of the parable of the dragnet. We thank you that we were once flapping about in the water. We were flapping and rounds and just not knowing where to go, yet we've been caught up in this kingdom of God. And Lord God, we pray that when we too get dragged up, that we will know and be accepting of your love and your forgiveness. But Father, for those that are caught in the net, who we may have other times thought, should you be here? Are you morally right? 
Lord, we pray that you will remove those thoughts from our minds and we will just accept people for who they are, your creation. And Lord God, help us not to judge, but leave that to you. Help us to love, to welcome, to challenge and grow. In Jesus' name we pray.